and welcome to episode five of Nevermind the Ballots. On this week's show, we have Green Councillor for Clifton, Paula O'Rourke, Lib Dem Councillor for Knoll, Gary Hopkins. Remember, you can rate, review and most importantly, subscribe to the show on your preferred podcasting app. You can also follow us at Ballots Podcast on Twitter. So this week's show is slightly different because we're only talking about two topics. Now, the first and the biggest is the Arena Project. So to give you a bit of background, last time we spoke about the arena, we were talking about the value for money. Since then, we've had 12 hours of scrutiny and they were looking into the value for money report by KPMG. Also on Tuesday, we had an announcement from Bristol Mayor Marvin Rees to say that a decision on the final location of the arena had been paused. So why am I telling you this? Well, you're going to need a little bit of context for our conversation this week. But if you'd like to, you can listen back to episode three with Eleanor Cumley and Desmond Brown, where we discussed the previous issues with the arena. And of course, there is so much, so many stories which I've written about it available on Bristol Live. So we're going to kick right off with the arena discussion. And I hope you guys enjoy. First of all, we're going to go back to the topic of Bristol Arena. So last time we spoke, we had a value for money report in from the auditors. Now, since then, this topic has kind of spiralled and new things have come to light. And the latest news is that there is going to be a pause on the decision making of the, for the project, where the future is going to be. And last week we had, I think it was 12 hours of scrutiny sessions, yeah. Yeah, which we all, all of us in this room sat through, very dedicated. So, Paula, if I could come to you first. Marvin has put this pause on. The, ori- the original um, decision was due to be made next Tuesday. Do you think that this is wise for him to do this? Well, I have to say that my, my prevailing mood is relief because I had such concerns from the very beginning. Um, at the meeting last Monday, I was astonished to see so few people from Bristol in the gallery because we've seen the gallery full for items that are less important or, or less important to the public than this one. But actually, when you think about the, the 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 procedures leading up to it, it wasn't at all surprising because the the document was only released at ten o'clock, about two days before the the notification to get statements in. So there just wasn't enough time for people to be able to understand it. And and I think it's really important that the the people of Bristol get their say on it. But also, you know, if you think about members and can, and councillors, uh, I'm on the overview and scrutiny board. But we had very little time to look at it all before the uh, the, the, the week of meetings started. Um, however, you know, having having experienced, endured, or whatever that week, um, I am very pleased about the whole thing that happened. Because, first of all, I mean, I personally learned an awful lot about the situation, so I was able to make a, a much better value judgment. Um, I think also that the the request by the scrutiny board to ask Buckingham and the arena a group and YTL to come and give their presentations just allowed a huge amount of insight. I was very disappointed that Marvin wasn't actually in the room to hear that, but I did I did see that his political advisor was there for most of the time. So that was very reassuring. And, I, you know, still, you know, this weekend, we were looking at a situation where the overview and scrutiny board were desperately trying to put a report together on Friday afternoon and knowing that the officers would be presenting their report yesterday. And I mean, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't take a genius to work out that 
there just isn't enough time to reflect and the sequencing of the whole thing was wrong. I mean, what's the point of having scrutiny and then if a report can't be written as a, as a consequence of that but has to be written concurrently? So I think obviously um, Marvin has seen this and, and has realised and he's changed his mind, which is great. I think also um, I've been reading what he said in the press um, and I think... You know, Buckingham, when they came, they were very persuasive. Um, they made it very clear that they could build the arena for 122 million. Uh, they explained the whole pain gain, um, sort of the, 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 the support and guarantees that they would give if it goes over budget. Um, and a lot of things came out about, you know, sort of, it, for me, it was a revelation to find out that the site at Temple Island had already, all the, the soil and everything had been cleared so that there are fewer... There are fewer worries about that site. So I suppose in short, yeah, it's just I'm really relieved that Marvin's decided to go back and look at it. And also, you know, fair credit to everything that's happened because Buckingham did come back and say that they would perhaps with a bit more design re-engineering that they would be able to reduce the price by yeah, another 5 to 10%. 5 to 10%, so wasn't it? It looks like Bristol would be getting really good value. So, mm. so just to kind of rewind for our listeners... The reason for this pause that Marvin Rees says is because Buckingham Group, the contractors, say that they can absolutely guarantee that they can build an arena in the city centre for £122 million, whereas in the KPMG Value for Money report, there was a figure of £156 million which they were saying the arena would cost to build on that site. So, Gary, are you happy that Marvin has decided to take this pause or looking at it through perhaps a slightly more sceptical <laughs> lens, would you say that this is kind of playing for time? Uh, I don't know which it is uh, at the moment. I do know that uh, he was very much set on taking the Fulton option, and I'm glad we've how, stopped. How do you know that, though? Well, if you look at the timeline and what actually happened and answers to some of the questions, which haven't been made public yet, but basically officers stopped work on the arena at Temple Mead some while ago, last year. This is just before Marvin, after discussions with YTL, was flown out to Malaysia at their expense, had a meeting with them, and then came back and then changed the terms of reference for the inquiry from KPMG, who are incidentally not our auditors. Um, uh, they haven't got a particularly good record on auditing recently. Uh, but that's the sequence of events. And... The officers that had been busy working on uh, some of the benefits from the peripheral development around the arena were switched instead to be looking at an alternative to the arena, and that was quite some while ago. Uh, it's also obvious that some of the officers involved did not have a grasp of the, the, the overall picture. Uh, we had a se very senior officer uh, giving completely false information about travel we're talking about the car parking. Yeah, yeah, quite. Uh, completely false information. Uh, and if we hadn't had uh, the operators who operate most of the arenas around the country anyway coming in and correcting that, then basically the decision would have been made on a completely false set of assumptions and information. Now, I don't know whether Marvin's just having a, a pause, a tactical pause, so that he can say he's checked all the facts and really it wasn't quite like that and then carry on doing what he was going to do anyway, or whether now the strength of feeling that's come across from all four parties, including the Labour Party that helped to get him elected, um, whether that's actually given him cause to really think about it. 
and actually start looking at the facts instead of going off in his own sweet way. Now, you mentioned the um, SMG and Live Nation, which together have come to create Arena Island Limited, who are the uh, operators of the Temple Quarter site. Now, they also came in and said that they had put an extra £55 million on the table, not not up front as such, but through additional benefits. So extending the, the terms of the lease, sorry, extending the lifetime of the lease, increasing rent slightly, a small capital sum. Um, Paula, how do you feel about that figure? I mean, do you think that it was a genuine offer? Um, that's a very complex issue that you're bringing up there. And I think that when KPMG had, a, had an opportunity to respond to it... They described um, it as mischievous, well, I think was the word they that, did. that they used. They did. But, and also, I mean, I, I don't really feel that I have the level of financial expertise, but my understanding of it was that you could either have a 25-year lease and then hand the building back to the city. And they were offering to take it for 35 years at, at a time when the overheads and it would be a full repairing lease, there would be more, um, you know, there would be more onerous charges on it. Um, but KPMG came back and said, well, actually, you know, getting the building for yourself, owning it yourself could have a value as well. So I'm not sure that we really ever quite got to the bottom of all of that. Um but I think a point that should really be made now today is that, I mean, Marvin's been talking about um, a dogmatic, loud voices um, who had made their minds up beforehand. Um, and, and I would like to say that I, I absolutely hadn't. I mean, I had a sort of a mild preference for Temple Island before and, and, and that was very much our group position. But I, I think I went into it with a, you know, very inquisitive mind. Um and and also Marvin said that he people have just seen it as a binary choice, and I absolutely didn't. I really saw that we had almost you know three things to consider, um, and es- essentially for me, I mean I think it's really important to understand that what we were looking at was deliverability, reliability, and what I think people want and people of Bristol want is to see Temple Island revitalised. And there are two options for that. One is the arena and the other one is this mixed use. Um, And in my summing up comments, what I said was that, you know, I feel absolutely having heard from Buckingham, having read KPMG's report and, um, you know, having taken all the information that the the arena at Temple Island, it, you know, the phrase we've been hearing all week, it's shovel ready, it's very reliable. And even, you know, KPMG's final sentence in their report, which I don't think people gave enough credit to. Um, I'm an ex-history teacher, so I have a, I have a tendency, you know, when, I, when somebody writes a big long essay or report, I go to the final bit to see what they actually think and then go back and read the details. And the final sentence of the KPMG report, which a lot of people have said, suggests that Filton is is where they should put the arena. It actually says, in comparison to the Filton Arena development, the Temple Island Arena is a well-developed project and as a result could be considered at this point in time to be more deliverable. Now, I'm I'm feeling quite benign towards Marvin this morning because I think it's just the relief of the fact that we, you know, we're, we're not being pushed into a decision which I think would be wrong for Bristol. Um, so I can see it, that, I can see that from his point of view, you know, he's he's considering that if we could get a mixed use development on Temple Island, you know, we, we've 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 learned that it would, you know, the, the profitability and the yield and all those sort of commercial terms would be higher. But but actually, you know, 
we're not a commercial organisation to that extent. It's a it's a public service. People of Bristol want an arena. Um, KPMG say it's perfectly deliverable. And that's with the high contingency figures in it. You know, the report that KPMG have written is with extensive contingencies, which we were able to read background documents. And when you read about the... The experience, you know, Buckingham have been building stadiums and leisure facilities for 100 years. They've, they've got, you know, a lot of information about the site. Um, you know, the, the contingency, you know, it, it is what it, it, it is. It's a contingency. It's not money that has to be spent. So, you know, now if Marvin can realise that he can get it for 122 million, maybe with a bit more shaved off. Um, so therefore, it's not binary. It's, it's the best thing. The three options. YTL will still build something at the Brabazon Hangers. And they were very persuasive as well. You know, they, they obviously their passion for the building came across really strongly. And, you know, they, they, they are quite confident that they want to build a sort of community up there in, in Filton, which isn't in Bristol. Not in Bristol. <laughs> it's not an extension of Bristol. That's what Colin Skellett, the uh, chairman of YTL, said. He did, yeah. So he called it an extension all the time, but it, it's not centre. ever going to. And we, you know, Bristolians know that that's the case. So I think the best solution, having listened for a whole week and read everything carefully, is that we put an arena at Temple Island, which we know is going to happen, and YTL will develop that area up there with houses and schools and community centres and some amazing sports or manufacturing facilities in the Brabazon Hangars. Mm. And that's what I would wish for. And so, Gary, to come over to you, Paula mentioned the alternative use for Arena Island, yeah. which KPMG set out. And they said, essentially, to kind of boil it down, that an arena on Arena Island would be profitable, but to use it for a conference centre, housing, retail and business space would offer more jobs and more money to Bristol. So that was the kind of, if we're weighing up purely just the use of that land, they kind of said, on balance, it will be more profitable to not build an arena. I mean, how do you feel about that? Well, firstly, the uh, arena as designed incorporates uh, a conference centre already. It it, it isn't just for 12,000-seater events. It's a very flexible design, so it can be used for all sorts of different purposes, including as a conference centre. Secondly... Um, the report from KPMG was commissioned by the mayor. He set the terms, the parameters for it, and basically he expected them to say exactly what he had asked them to say. But we should say it wasn't an independent report. Uh, it wasn't fully independent because the report um, says what it's allowed to say. And they were not allowed to look at the wider aspect on Bristol, the, the, the social benefit uh, and the demand for an arena in Bristol, not some miles away in Fulton. Uh, and it is fanciful to say that Fulton is part of Bristol because it's, it's a very long way distant. And people travelling would, in actual fact, uh, not regard it as, as part of Bristol. Now, again, plans there are very much underdeveloped, uh, so it might be more profitable. I've spent all my working life assessing risk and advising on risk. And basically, it's, it's, although it's a great site and it's near the city centre and Bristol's booming overall, there is still a risk. And uh, on that form of development, uh, not nearly as big a risk as is involved in the, in the so-called Fulton Arena, but basically it will take years. And is it what people actually want? Does it really help 
uh, Bristol and what Bristol wants to be, having various office blocks and a few houses, which can be built you know, in lots of different places, but the arena can only be built in that one place. And people in Bristol have made very clear that they do want an arena. And various sites were examined for, for several years, and that one came out to be the one that was progressed. We spent millions of pounds on it. It can be delivered, and the alternative uses are just red herrings. I mean, we were told, oh, well, you know, it'll help us save the libraries. Well, I mean, for goodness sake, it's absolute nonsense. That plan, the financing for the arena at Temple Meads, basically we're able to borrow money extremely cheaply because we're a council. The money is actually put in, and we know that the lease, which is there ready to be signed uh, and has been agreed upon, will more than pay the rent and leave some, some money over. The offer from the operators to take an extra 10-year lease I thought was quite significant. And I think it's also quite significant that that was rejected by the council. Mm. With no explanation is, is no, what... No, no explanation at what, all. Um, I mean, basically, one of the things that say. I, I would think is potentially one of the weaker points on the arena at Temple Island is what's an arena, second-hand arena worth after 25 years? I wouldn't have thought that would be worth a fortune. So the fact that they're prepared to go on an, an extra 10 years and pay the, uh, the escalating rent and take on the extra repairing cost for another 10 years, I would have snapped their hands off at that. And basically, I, I just think it speaks volumes that officers didn't think that that was worthwhile having. Mm. I don't think they fully realise the risks and what people really want. And if they're prepared to run it for an, for an extra 10 years mm. with an escalating rent, I thought that was a very valuable offer. Now, Paulie, you very kindly raised your hand there. Now, let me come back to you. What, what would you like to say? Well, again, it's on this deliverability risk point. I, I think maybe, you know, having had the opportunity to have YTL and, and all the other um, people involved with the, the, with the pr both proposals um, in during the week and, and hearing what they have to say has probably given Marvin really lots more information. And, and again, I go back... you have already had that information, though? Why, well, I don't why, know. Maybe why it's, wasn't that not known before? Well, I think... I don't know. Well, either it's, it's, you know, pressure. You know, there's been a lot of pressure on this. There's a lot of interest in it. There's been a big bright light shone on the whole proposals for this whole week. And I think that's really benefited everybody. And I'm hoping that, that really, you know, th th this is going to, to save the project. Um... But but I think again, going back to those those last lines, which are the summative comments, and it really struck me that um, at YTL, um, the the chief executive wrote a statement, and the last line of it, he said that absolutely sure that he can do this, deliver it, no problem whatsoever. Just two small caveats. One of them is if they get planning permission, and the second one is if they get the public transport. But when you when you unpick that. I mean, we've heard a lot about the sequential planning test and that, in, in essence, that means if you're going to um, give planning permission, they're going to have to look at, you know, there's a, a planning framework, which is, it's a national planning framework, which says that, you know, we want to keep our city centres whole and compact. So if something's going to be built on the outside, it you have to prove that there aren't any other areas closer to the city. So it's very unlikely, well, it's very challenging to pass that sequential test. So therefore, you know, it may never get planning permission. And then the second point, which is about the public transport. And we're talking about 
millions of pounds of 100 million, 100 million pounds and and we had a long conversation about whether an extra 5 minutes of train track would cost 5 million 15 million or 57 million I know I that think. 57 million and I just, figure was incredible and how something can 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 just be turned from 57 million on somebody's word into no 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 we can get it for 5 million it'll be fine um and there were huge assertions Every week, people are just asserting. And I don't think we should be making huge decisions on somebody's say-so. And I think I go back to the point, having listened all week, I mean, the weakest for me, the weakest and least compelling argument was the one put forward by officers for the mixed use. Because we we saw nothing, you know, just words. You were upset that there weren't visual aids. Yeah, I felt, <laughs> yes, I was. You remember I liked that. <laughs> well, I just felt, you know, and especially then to be told, oh, yeah, we could have done that. You know, well, I think they should have done it because, you know, well, first of all, it would help us to understand what, what they're going to do. But secondly, and more importantly, I think it would give me some confidence in the rigour of the plans that are there already. It just seems so tentative and just not credible because of that. So. You know, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. We've got a shovel ready, build an arena. It's what people want. And also another thing, actually, which I found this week was that, um, again, Buckingham made a point which I'd never thought about before, which was that really big arenas are not doing so well now because huge, big, the hero acts. I've never heard that phrase before. That was interesting when he was talking about you don't want it to be too big. Otherwise you lose that atmosphere when you're doing smaller gigs, which is going to be the bread and butter of an arena, isn't it, really? And the hero acts go to stadiums. Mm -hmm. Stadia. So, um, so yeah, so I thought that was a compelling argument as well. Mm. So, Gary, if I could come to you and let me guide you just quickly. (laughs) Let me just try and guide you, try and rein you in. So, Paula mentioned um, the Filton Airfield site and in particular the sequential planning test. So, my understanding is that for, for that to even have a shot, for Filton to even have a shot, the agreement from YTL is that Temple Island has to be completely abandoned and turned over to mixed use, and only then will the sequential planning have some kind of a, a method of getting through. And secondly, this transport issue, there were three things which Colin Skellett mentioned. A dedicated metro bus route, which is already planned for, that's the Cribs Patchway extension, Um the extension from Temple Meads to Filton. And again, there's already plans in for a station on the airfield. And the third was this patchway extension. And this is what Paula was mentioning, between 5 million and 50, I think it's 53, some, somewhere in that ballpark to extend the line. I mean, we had no actual kind of reports laid out for us. Is this all pie in the sky? Yes. Basically, not only do they want the alternative horse shot, they want the owners to butcher it <laughs> and, 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 and then distribute the bits afterwards. Absolutely shocking. Uh, and basically all that money has been spent on developing a scheme. I mean, I personally, because my ward isn't all that far away, put the previous mayor through a lot of pressure in terms of developing the travel planning and all that sort of thing to get it through a planning process. That wasn't because I felt like doing it. It's because it needed to be done. But all that hard work was done, and we came up with a plan at the end of the day that was deliverable. Now, credit to Marvin on one thing, because the developers that the previous mayor had 
didn't seem to have any idea about costings at all, and it was spiralling out of control. So Marvin did get in new developers. Uh, there was a year's delay, but, you know, he did get in new developers, and they have demonstrated that they can, in actual fact, do it significantly cheaper. And they're very professional. They were extremely convincing. They've done the job lots of times before. The problem is that they identified a lot of those cost savings quite quickly. And in the meantime, while they were developing those cost savings, the mayor was flying off to Malaysia and agreeing uh, in, on the quiet a deal to switch, to, to, to kill the arena at Temple Meads and to switch to, to Fulton. And he needed that as an alibi. So, yeah, that, you bring up an interesting point there because both Buckingham Group and Arena Island Limited say that these costings which they presented are not new. Arena Island Limited said that they'd come back with a revised offer in December. Yeah. And I believe the Buckingham Group one had been long-standing for quite a long time. Yes. But in yesterday's statement, if I can just flip through my notes, Marvin says... Um, First of all, there's a small dig at the scrutiny committee. Um, <laughs> but then it goes into, firstly, Buckingham, our contract partner for an arena on Temple Island, gave evidence to suggest a financial offer which they have never tabled previously. I mean, do you believe that to be true? No, I, I don't. Uh, basically, uh, what they did uh, say was there might be room for a little bit more negotiation. They had tabled the main offer uh, and... I established the timing on that, which was October last year. So they'd done that by then. Mm. What what potentially is new is that when we questioned them, they said, well, we might be able to shave a bit more than that off. And we also established that the, the ridiculous contingency figures that the council have got in to inflate the price And just to necessary. say that the public and the press haven't seen these contingency mm. figures because they are... You know they're deemed to be kind of business sensitive, so it's just for councillors and people I can, who I can are, still know. call them. Oh, ridiculous. of course, yeah, no, no, you you <laughs> with, say whatever you like, but you've seen them. <laughs> yeah, exactly, they are ridiculous. Uh, and basically, when you've got a brand new scheme that hasn't been thought through, like Filton, for example, like uh, the, the the alternative development of Temple Meads, then basically you do need to put in large amounts of money because you don't know the answers to lots of questions and lots of things can go wrong. With regard to the arena at Temple Island, we've been going through that. It's got the plan information. It's been squeezed down in terms of how things are actually going to operate. We, I mean, I knew for quite a while what condition the land was in, but there's effectively a contingency in there in case the land mm. is dodgy. Well, it isn't. Millions have been spent mm. on that, make, making it right. So basically, um, you know, the, the contingency... Is, is inflated and it's been put against the arena at Temple Island when none of the potential risks have been set against an alternative. And But there is also a possibility that it could be less than, which is what Buckingham said uh, verbally uh, to us, it could be less than the f clear figure that they've given because until they start squeezing things down with the contractors, they won't know the mm. final figure. So there's a risk on both sides. It's small, but it's a risk on both sides. They're, they're, they're they have a huge amount of expertise. Yeah. Mm. But what is costing, and that's no question at all, is delay. Mm. There is an inflation within the, uh, within the construction industry in Bristol. And basically I had it confirmed that since 
Marvin took over, the inflation rate for building in Bristol is approaching 20%. Mm. So basically, if at that point he'd got on with things, it would have been massively cheaper. Now, he was handicapped at that point in that the developers needed to be replaced because they hadn't got much idea of the keeping the cost down um, and the new operators needed to be brought in. But once they were brought in and gave them the figures, it should have been got, got on with then. If he'd pressed the button, well, nearly a year ago now, that would have saved you know a good 10%. So you did ask during the scrutiny whether there was an actual cost attached to the delay. Did you get an answer to that? Uh, well, I've had it in writing in actual fact. The uh, It's 16% per year. 16% over the period since Marvin actually took over. So 16% of that 122 million? In Yeah, or the 110, whatever it was before. And 100, yeah, 16%. So essentially it's gone up 16% by waiting? Yeah, basically because of the delay. So since last October when Marvin was given the lower figure by Buckingham, given solidity in terms of we can, we can build it for this, the cost has gone up probably 8%, 10%. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, we welcome the fact that he's not actually cancelled Temple Meads Arena. But if he dithers around for another month or two, we'll have another few percent going on to the costings. Uh, and that really is uh, a shocking cost for Bristol to bear. This should have been pre- the button should have been pressed on this last year and he should have been getting on with it. A couple of points to make, but on the point about delay, I think it's, you know, we gave up all that time. We sat and we, we scrutinised everything all last week. And we, we still don't know what this delay is going to be. I mean, we're reading about it in the Bristol Post. I think that's something that we would really be asking Marvin for now is some concrete dates of, mm. of when he is going to make a decision. I can see that he wants to perhaps go back and maybe try to shave a deal with Buckingham and with Arena Limited. But, you know, again, talking about diary dates and going back to what you said about the trip to Malaysia, there was a lot of time spent last week trying to ferret out where the whole idea about the Brabazon hangar originated from. And I, in all honesty, I'm not 100% sure that I can clearly understand how that happened still. No, we because don't know I didn't who get came the diary to dates. who and, and no. who said who, who approached yeah. who. I, I well, I mean, I was a bit frustrated about that. I mean, you, you were there as well. But, you know, on Wednesday, I asked for officers and Marvins and other politicians' diary dates so that we could just have a look and see who met YTL when what meetings might have happened and what did happen in Malaysia. Because whether it's conspiracy theory or or whatever, people are asking an awful lot of questions. And I do think that it would be better for that to have, you know, absolute clarity on it. Where did the idea come from? I mean, YTL say that they were just reading about it in the papers and they went, oh, yes, we'll build build an arena for you. So, So I think that is a problem. So did you get answers to those diary questions? No. And um, I think you probably noticed that I was frustrated by that as well because we're there to scrutinise and hold the administration to account. So when the scrutiny board asked for information, officers said that they were busy doing other stuff. But, you know, I felt I felt that the, the scrutiny board was being condescended to and maybe even slightly patronised. And that's what I definitely felt at the time because... I don't think it's up to officers to decide what information to give us and not to give us. You know, we're there to ask for the information that we want. And if we had those diary dates, we might be able to see something very innocent or, but now that I don't get the dates, what am I left thinking? And it has to be said that the officer in charge of the project from Bristol's point of view 
left the council uh, middle of last year, very frustrated because I spoke to him when he left. He asked for a meeting uh, to discuss some matters. At the time, there was quite a lot of officers leaving the council, uh, not very happy state. But anyway, he left and he went off to YTL. Now, that was the middle of last year. Uh, now, you can't tell me that that had no connection at all with YTL all of a sudden coming up with the idea of speaking to the council about uh, potentially providing an alternative arena to give an alibi for Marvin actually cancelling the, the, the Temple of Meads one. Now, he was with YTL for some while. In October this year, the person put in charge of the whole operation was brought in from outside the council, the senior officer, although he's not a permanent employee of the council, uh, and he actually gave us some puzzling answers regarding the car parking, how people mm. got to it. He just did not seem to understand any of the basics of why you were building an arena there. How did you feel about the information which was provided to scrutiny? As Paula said, it felt like there was, it was a bit lacking. I know it was very rushed that, you know, holding this scrutiny meeting. Somebody chose with, to make it so rushed, you know? True, very yes, true. quite, absolutely. But not the officers. No. Not well, the officers. I don't know, because having been in an administration, I can tell you that the leaders, the political leaders and the officers work together uh, and they plan together to make things happen or not happen. And basically, yes, we were deliberately squeezed for time. I thought the commission from all sides asked some very good questions and we got some very interesting answers, which apparently the mayor hadn't bothered to ask before, uh, of his own contractors, which I think in itself, if that's the true answer for him, that's extremely worrying. Uh, but we were working under a handicap, and I still think there is a fair amount of information to come out. Uh, at the Scrutiny Leads meeting yesterday, our planning meeting, we decided to keep in our diary a meeting for the 2nd of July. Mm -hmm. So to, just to let our listeners know, that was a meeting which was going to take place the day before the Cabinet where the arena location was meant to be kind of finalised. Yes, and we've kept that in the diary apart from anything else, because there are so many unanswered questions yet. So we'd still want to, to pursue matters. And I mean, our uh, submission from, don't forget, an all-party uh, group of councillors, councillors from all four parties, was extremely united. There was one person who didn't go along with the line. But apart from that, people from all four parties agreed. It was nine, that, out, nine out of the ten mm. of you all. I mean, doesn't that say everything? Mm. This is the first time the councillors have got to see a lot of the information. We had to drag it out under questioning, but it's the first time because everything has been kept completely under wraps. We haven't known what um, uh, what a lot of the, the key information. And in actual fact, as a group, we decided until very recently not to take a position because the complete lack of information mm -hmm. coming out meant that it was extremely difficult. Now, when the motion came to council, uh, our group sort of said, well, in theory, yes, we prefer Temple Meads, but we don't really have enough information, mm. and we didn't. So it was, a, it was a preference, and others decided not to vote on that. But we didn't have definitive information. We now do have a lot more information, and it's become extremely clear. I know. We, we Greens got um, a bit of abuse for being the sort of people who just don't care about money, just, you know, illiterate 
from a from a commercial point of view, which is which we denied, and you know we have been very rigorous, and some of the quest the best questions, the most probing questions, came from the Greens mm. in this. Um, awesome process. Anyway, I want to just try to move things on a little bit because I'm because I'm in a very sunny mood this morning. Mm. Um, I want to pitch you both a scenario Ooh. and see what you think about it. We've all been very dispirited for the past couple of weeks, where you know we feel that the, the, the all the gossip in the corridors and the rumor everywhere seems to be that Marvin had already made his mind up and the arena was going to be at Filton, and there was despair. Now, yesterday we have this turnaround. Um, so here's my here's my pitch, and I want to see what you think about it. So actually, we're wrong. Marvin was never going to do that. Marvin was doing exactly what he said, which was he wanted to get a value for money report. Again, we maligned Marvin because we thought, oh, he knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing because the environmental study wasn't in it, the social impact, uh, those those things that are so important to the people of Bristol. Uh, weren't being considered. But actually, that's not true. I mean, maybe, you know, in this benign mood that I'm in this morning, what actually happened was Marvin wanted a thorough investigation into the cost of everything. And then he was going to layer on top of that the fact that it's not just a money situation. It's also, you know, the environmental impact, jobs for South Bristol, which is, you know, an area that's very close to Marvin's heart, um, we don't want to suck the lifeblood out of the city. KPMG said that they had rounded up a lot of the social impact um, into economic impact, but but I don't think we I don't think we agree with that. So so that's my pitch. So do you agree with me? Is it possible that it was never going to be the case that it was predetermined that it was never going to be Filton? Marvin is in a position now where he can see that he can deliver an arena. Okay, it won't make the huge profit margin that the fantasy mixed use conference centres, etc. will, but it's practical. And, and because he knows that it's right and will bring jobs into Bristol, will save the heart of Bristol, will be environmentally better, that he's given himself a bit of time to think about that. And, you know, we, we have cause to be optimistic. Gary? Ah, well, I'm glad to uh, that you've got the rose-coloured spectacles there. <laughs> Bluntly, uh, a number of years' experience, which I know you haven't actually had, <laughs> has actually taught me the way things are in reality. So I haven't, haven't earned my cynicism <laughs> stripes yet. Well, uh, I think realism is more of a description that I would like to use. I mean, did, what we didn't find out from the questioning, as another example, how long do you think that development, the alternative development, is likely to take? Well, there was mention of 90, of 2022. So, I mean, to be honest, I think that's a really interesting point. And again, not, I'm taking off my rose-coloured spectacles. Six years, according to yes. this. Let me make my point, though. To my written answer, written question, written answer, six years for the alternative well, development. But how long would it okay. take to build an arena, though? It's going to take well, a little while. Well, it won't take six years because it's shuffle-ready. It, it's gone through planning process. Mm. Uh, the, the work's already been also, done. Also, the point is, and again, rose, rose-coloured glasses have been removed. I think, you know, Marvin is a political animal. And he wasn't there, but his political advisor was there. And I'm of a mind to say that, you know, when you're coming for election in 2020 and the diggers and the, the cranes, started, yeah. are, but they, no, but if they are working in Temple mm. Island, you're doing something. And I know Marvin wants to build houses as well, but he's building houses in other parts of the city. At the moment, if Marvin to go for forward to be elected, what is he going to say that he's done? Mm. And it's getting to that situation now. We, 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 see, we, we see this with libraries as well that we are closer to the next election than we are further away from the last election and that's going to make a big mm. difference. So so I think that as a pragmatic politician, you know, I would be advising him to 
get 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 the cranes moving. Can I bat something back at you, Paula? Go on then. What do you think to the suggestion that actually this was all a really tactical move on Marvin's part? He saw the Buckingham Group offer and he thought, "No, we can do better on that if we bring in this alternative offer." And, you know, start a little bit of competition wars here. We can get it knocked down a little bit and get the best for Bristol. Mm, well, I'm afraid, you know, the, the, the sunny spectacles are not going to see a positive <laughs> note on that one. I mean, I think, I think I've not been a councillor for very long. I've been a councillor for two years, but I've had a lot of experience of HR and we've had a lot of issues with with uh, recruitment and staff mm. and all of that <laughs> sort of issues. We've spoken so, about that on the podcast. Okay. <laughs> what I'm saying is that even with the restructuring and all of those things, I see a lot of things evolving uh, and I think that the strategical forethought has perhaps not been there at times and again with with issues like libraries you know it's it's not well I suppose in in short I don't think that the evidence I've seen from Marvin's actions is that he has it he is proactive and strategic enough for for that level of Machiavellian carry on <laughs> <laughs> well let me throw out another Topic to do with the arena then. Mm. This car park at Arena Island, mm. 16 million KPMG. 18 and a half. Sorry, 18 and a half million yeah. KPMG have budgeted for it. Where is it? Well, we asked officers that and they didn't know. Um, you know, 18 and a half million pounds, you're going to get quite a big car park. Where are you going to put it? Now, I happen to disagree with the previous mayor on this. I think a small car park at the Quick Fit site would have been beneficial. Uh, you try to put a huge big car park in there, you're going to get gridlock when people come and go. A small one, though, where you charge premium prices for people who want to be very close to it, drive to it, uh, and some people who find it difficult to walk long distances, whatever, people who pay for that, that would help to pay for the the the, uh, the public transport, etc. Mm. So I think that that's sensible. Car park of £18.5 million, it's just been used to inflate the, the, the cost of the arena. And it's not connected to the arena. Uh, I mean, we looked at all sorts of alternatives when we were developing uh, the uh, Enterprise Zone and the early plans for the arena, which which George took over. And basically, we concluded that it would be bad value to put a very large car park and bad planning to put a very large car park in the arena area. I mean, we even looked at, at one point, having one out by the feeder road Mm-hmm. And uh, and the causeway, a multi-story there, and having one of those pod things that uh, individual pods, uh, bring people in, pods, and they have at, uh, at, Very at, at, mm. at at the airport, mm-hmm. and in actual fact, that yeah. was more viable than sticking a huge big car park yeah. in, in in the development mm. zone. What I what I remember about the whole debate about the the car park was that uh, one of the developers just kept saying it would wash its face, it'll wash its <laughs> face, and I was it took me ages to figure out what this wash its face. And I suppose obviously what he meant was it would be cost neutral, mm-hmm. it would make its own money, which is absolute yeah. nonsense. If you can't make a stonking great profit out of a car out park, of, out of a car park next to an arena, mm. I mean, good grief, you know, mm. even Bristol City Council can surely do that. But I mean, you hand that across to the the developers, they'd make a lot of money with that car park mm. huge amount of money my issue is where where is it going to be precisely I, there well, was no indication as to no. location no and I mean I think um, Councillor Ollie Mead had a lot to say about that because he was on the planning committee um, but again you know nobody again it's a bit like the meetings with YTL the absolute origins of these things could not be so, sorted mm. out 
so there are, so so that's another thing as well, which is why it's a great relief that the decision hasn't been made and revealed last night one way or the other, because I think there still are things to be looked at. And the car park came from the senior officer who didn't know how people got to arenas, yeah. invented a figure of 75 or 80% of people coming to arenas by That was car. bad. And mm. that was a justification mm. for throwing in a huge car park, which incidentally, if it was put in and it's part of the arena, would complicate the planning process all over again. Um, and that was a justification for inflating the price because we needed this arena. And, you know, when you had the operators of... Leeds and Manchester Arena sat there giving evidence to us, which completely and absolutely yes. actual evidence completely undermined everything that he was saying. Yeah, and that was a bit of a reveal. I didn't re- realize that was my, actually my question, and I didn't re- I didn't really put the whole thing together that that they they also ran the Leeds Arena, and I'd been trying to validate that yeah. information of seventy five percent, and of course that that. Well, they run practically erroneous. all the arenas yeah. around between them mm. uh, in, in in the UK. And I think one of the other revealing things was when the developers were asked, does this sort of thing really yes. <laughs> happen about cancellations in, in this way? And, and they said, well, no, not really. And then it was pressed, and uh, how often has this happened? Once, and that was in Bristol. Yeah. I mean, mm, the reputation of the city yeah. would absolutely plummet mm. if he gets this one wrong and cancels yeah. the arena the potential prospect of one out of town. Mm. I mean, really, it just yeah. would be disastrous. Actually, can I go back to talking? I mean, I found it really interesting um, talking to the developers because it was a big, big eye opener for me. Um, I think, I think, the issue as well about building in the Brabazon Hangar is that you're going to be building an arena inside a building, mm-hmm. and I hadn't really thought about that before. But obviously, you know, to to have cranes and you know the things that you need to put a structure up. To do that inside another building, I think could, you know, I mean, the point was that from YTL and from the, um, the, the, the people who were putting forward the mixed use development, you know, and they were, they were the, the Bristol City Council officers, mm-hmm. we were getting, you know, very simplistic answers to everything. No, it's not a problem. We've done this. But yes, it'll be fine. No worries. I mean, I did actually ask one of the um, officers about the mixed site. Um, what would be the hurdles and the obstacles? Because, you know, if, if you haven't got any planning permission, if you haven't got any developers in, if you maybe need to buy parcels of land or whatever, you, there, there must be things. And I was blithely told that, you know, there were no problems. It was all going to be amazing. Um, and I felt as if I was given a sales pitch. And that, that really got my antenna sort of wiggling and, and I began to feel quite sceptical. And I think in the end, you know, that, that really is what made me feel that the Temple Island is best used for the arena because that's got planning permission. It's got a, a developer who was very compelling and um, it's ready to go. So, uh, what was also interesting was one other member of the commission actually asked uh, YTL about their experience of running arenas and that sort of thing. And, you know, and he asked the question twice and both times they came up with vague ideas of what they might do in the future. Not once did they come back with anything no. which indicated they had any experience yeah. uh, of of doing this sort of job before. Actually, coming back to that, you know the way when when you're when you when you're in any sort of an interview, or you do anything. I bet you, as a journalist as well, Esme, often feel oh, I wish I'd asked mm. a, a sequential question or you know just probed that thing a bit more. What do you wish you asked? Well, 
YTL said that they've got 26 acres in the Brabazon site. And larger than the O2. Larger than the O2, but that they would, that the O2 was 22 acres, so that they would be able to have this huge stadium arena and still have space in the um, in the, the sort of two wings of, mm. of the hangar for, um, you know, creative uh, education, um, manufacturing use and other types of entertainment. And and in my naivety, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm of an age where I haven't got a huge amount of experience of going to arenas. And they were explaining that with the O2, they can shrink it down um, for for smaller um, acts and things and then use it. But then when I went home, I was thinking that even with the O2, when they shrink it down, you can't have a manufacturing um, unit in the bit that they've shrunk down. So it still didn't make sense to mm-hmm. me. I don't think it just... It seems as if maybe I, on my way home from the meeting, was was doing a little bit more thinking mm. than than had been done by the YTL people to to actually work out how they're going to use the space. And again, it's the credibility, you know, that makes you feel I I can't believe in this. Mm. So, if I could put you three final questions, how long do you think Marvin can wait? Not long, sixteen percent um, for two years. So that's eight percent per Not year. Long. We can work that out months. He needs to make his mind up. Also, to be quite honest, you know, everybody deserves uh, a, a decision on this. Mm. I'm really glad he's paused. I hope he's reflecting. I go back to my sunshine scenario that Marvin's taken time. He's he's really cogitating hard on the whole thing and realizing that Temple Island is is achievable. Um, so I would. There was mention of an extraordinary cabinet, cabinet meeting. meeting. I do, I do, I do feel, you know, that it's completely wrong that members, elected members, are trusting the the very trustworthy Bristol Post <laughs> for for information. We should be getting this information. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that he has the courtesy, especially to the scrutiny board members. I hope he has the courtesy to reveal to us what his thinking is. And I would say, you know. It, I think we had about two weeks to do all the work that we've just done. And I think another couple of weeks is about all that it would need. And where do you think it will be built and where do you think it should be built? Um, I, you know, again, I, I maybe I am new and naive, but I've all, I always think it'll be built at Temple Island. Because when I read the KPMG report, when I came down to the end, I don't think it's about huge profits. So for me, a reasonable politician would say it's deliverable. It won't cost um, the people of Bristol anything to build this arena. It's where they want it, and um, and and he should. And also, as a pragmatic politician, I can do that and tell the people that I've done something when they when I go for election in twenty twenty. So I've always thought that it, it it should be and it will be at Temple Island. And Gary, same questions. How long do you think Marvin can afford to wait? Well, it co- it's costing roughly seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds a month. Mm-hmm. The delay. That's Good a lot maths. of money. And this report itself has been delayed and delayed and delayed. It should have happened last year. He should have pressed the button then. Uh, basically, he should get on with actually building at Temple Island. And where do you think it will be built? Uh, I think where it gets built is either at Temple Islands, if he thinks he can get away with it, uh, you know, with his own party, basically. And, and I'm afraid I'm rather more... Cynical with regard to the reasons why it would be built at Temple Island. I think it should be built there because uh, politicians from all parties have looked, who've looked at this came up with a very clear answer. Mm-hmm. And the majority of the Bristol public want that. And all the peripheral 
uh, benefits that likely come from this should come to Bristol City Centre. A help for our pubs and restaurants and hotels, the, the, the benefit for our shopping facilities. Because mm. the percentage of people, 10% of people on average, that go to arenas stay overnight. They're not going to stay, you know, out of town. Uh, they're, they're, if, they, if they come into the arena at uh, Temple Meads, they will stay in the city. They will use facilities in the city. The city will get visitors that it wouldn't otherwise have. And I think and a lot of those people now are going to Cardiff or they're going elsewhere. So that's the reason why it should be a Temple Meads. But where will it be built? I haven't got a clue <laughs> what's going on within Marvin's mind or within the, the, the dust-ups that are happening within the Labour Party. And I can tell you there are plenty of dust-ups going on within mm. the Labour Party. There's a lot of very unhappy people yes. there. So how those eventually come out, I don't know. It's not just a matter of Marvin standing in front of the electorate in 2020. He's got to be selected to be there first. Good point. And mm. if he gets this wrong, his own party mm. might deselect him. Every South Bristol Labour councillor, when there was that indicative vote a little while ago, every one of them, including his chief whip and members of his cabinet, actually voted yes. against the mayor's position yeah. of going to uh, to to to, to uh, Felton. And so I'm sure I'm sure Marvin's aware of the fact as well that I think I think there are enough areas on procedure with the scrutiny decision that's going gone now that I think there I've heard a lot of people talking about calling it in back to full yeah. council. Judicial review. And uh, if he's yeah. if he's had um well, well I mean we go back to your point about his own councillors not supporting him. I think it would be very hard You've to got to take people with you. Well, I think we've done the arena now. I think Fantastically. We have. Let's move on to trusts. So as far as I understand it, if if a council wants to put something into a trust, say the Colston Hall, what it will be is it will be an independent kind of board which it might choose to put an elected representative on as a member. And there could be some funding which goes to it. This funding might be reduced over a certain amount of time. And it's essentially a way of safeguarding an asset for the city. Yes, and, and, and basically, if it's done properly, you actually get a lot of expertise coming in and helping to make a, a facility work that wasn't mm. before, uh, can have tax advantages. Uh, but you have to set it up carefully. It has to be done under the right circumstances. So taking the Colston Hall, it was actually the Bristol Music Trust, so as well as what they do within the Colston Hall, they do a huge amount of outreach work. And, I mean, it happens to be a school within my ward. They were a major factor in helping to turn around. It was one of the worst performing schools in the whole country. And it's now in the top 10% performers. And they were a huge factor in that. So why would a council set up a trust like the Colston Hall and the, the Music Trust? Well, we, we, we faced a position some years ago where, uh, with, with the Colston Hall where we had a building that was in extremely poor shape. It really was in shocking condition. We didn't have enough money to do it up. And clearly every year we were having to shovel money in to just keep it limping along. We, heard, we looked at things that had been done elsewhere. We came up with a plan of putting a new frontage on the foyer. We set up the trust and basically we said, please, you know, run this properly. Uh, and the, the subsidies going in there have dramatically reduced. And when they now get the, the final building work, it'll be gone. The subsidies will go completely. It will make a profit, which it can plough back into, uh, you know, good works around the city. And they brought in expertise. They've also brought in a lot of money. So, for example, it's costing £50 million to rebuild the rest of the building, which the council didn't actually have. 
I mean, we have the freehold of that building. We, we're responsible for it. But we didn't have £50 million to do the rest of the building. We've actually put in under £15 million, uh, the council, uh, £10 million grant and, you know, guaranteed a little bit of the rest of the money if it doesn't, if every penny doesn't actually come in. But the trust has got in lottery funding uh, from Heritage Lottery and, and from another lottery fund. They've got in private sponsorship. They've reduced expertise. They've reduced the running costs. That's why we would use trusts. And in that particular case, it worked wonderfully well. There have been other examples. The park in, um, uh, in my part of the world, which was the old Merrywood Boys School, that mm-hmm. the Labour Party actually closed down. It was a derelict building in extremely poor shape and with no way forward. It's now a thriving hub with dozens and dozens of community organisations and of commercial organisations uh, working there. And actually, it's now not a drain on the council at all. Arnesvale Cemetery, which was had been a disaster area, we were able to hand that across to a trust, which came from lots of local people bringing in some experts. And that now works at uh, you know a, a, an operating profit. And the state of the place is phenomenal compared to what it used to be. It's again attracted outside funds, got lots of volunteers involved. People will volunteer for trusts that wouldn't volunteer for the council. And what types of services do you think would be appropriate for trusts? I think I know at the moment, obviously, we're going through this whole issue with the libraries as to their future. And we've got things to do with the parks as well and Ashton Court. Are, are those the types of areas where you think trusts would be appropriate? Yes, but it has to be done carefully. The terms on which you set the trust up and their aims and objectives have to be extremely carefully thought through and they have to be given a fair chance. And, and unfortunately, I mean, with the parks, I understand now that the parks forum was full of experts and full of enthusiastic people and now saying to the council, forget it. Uh, although they were quite happy to look at the concept of a park, the way that they've actually been treated by the present administration says they're not going to have anything to do with helping to set up a, a trust. Um, and and the library situation, again, you know, it is not a matter of throwing a building at an org- organisation and saying, get on with it and providing no help or expertise. With the Colston Hall, we actually came to the agreement that we would do up the front part, the foyer, which gave them uh, money-earning opportunities, uh, and that gave them a fair chance of getting on and doing the rest of the job. Without that, that the poyer being done, that if we tried to hand across the whole building, they would have been uh, swamped and, and, and the whole place would have just gradually declined and collapsed. Mm. So, Paula, what, what's your take on trusts? Well, actually, I want to go back to a little bit. While Gary was talking there, I was reminded of um, the budget in 2017 when the Green Group identified, um, you know, 1.8 million of funds that could be used and the 700 and something thousand was an amendment that I I proposed to use to help community groups to upskill them and to to buy buy in some services so that they could you know become trustees and, and set up trusts and unfortunately that was voted down and I take Gary's point now that because now that you know things are being withdrawn and there are more cuts you know groups are not able to continue to have the motivation and the desire and, and the skills to, to take on very onerous t- 
tasks. I know that. I mean, I've been the chair of the um, Clifton Library, Friends of the Library group for two years now, and we've just been treading water. Um, I, I, and I, I, I can see that, you know, the decision was, well, well, again, you know, I'm very frustrated this morning about the whole thing about next week's cabinet because we were to- supposed to have two, mm, two, big two reports, two big announcements. And there's, there's a lot of kicking of cans down mm-hmm. roads. Um, and I think generally with the libraries thing, and again, I go back to, I go back to what I said earlier about the strategic thinking, you know, there was a libraries report in 2015. I'm sure Marvin read it when he came in. Um, why, why have we had all this two years of, of, well, the, the mutual ventures report says that we, that at the moment Bristol libraries are and they use the phrase several times managing decline and that's a real issue that that's been allowed to happen for two years um I, and also I mean I'm I'm actually on the libraries task of finish scrutiny group and again I'm reading press releases we suggested our, our group suggested last summer that time should be found to to get some sort of trust up and running to take over the libraries. That that idea was dismissed. And then, of course, in November, we had the, the, the rollback from the decision on anything. And, and that, then we had mutual ventures. So just, to, just for our listeners, so the decision was to close 17 of Bristol's 27 libraries to save 1.4 million. So 1.4 million has not been saved. The libraries have not been closed. The librarians have been treading water ever since. And now, obviously, there is a, there's there's some sort of a, a decision to to change and to keep the libraries open till 2020 or maybe a bit beyond that, which is a Election huge relief. Year. Well, it's a great relief, and I've been in the library, and, and it's it's fantastic to feel the uplift from the librarian staff because you know they have been they they've you know they they've struggled on for years now, so you know decisions need to be made, but again, I'm not quite sure how we're going. Going, how it's going to be done. Do you think a trust system would help save Bristol's libraries? Um, well, Mutual Ventures have written a report saying that, yes, some sort of joint ventures, charitable status. They've given a, a very thorough report with a, a ranking and a weighted system. And certainly there's there's the potential for that. But of course, they worked on a model of just 10 libraries plus 10 libraries that were suggested to be open in the consultation when it was done and three um, self-service libraries. So I suppose things can be extrapolated out from that. The report certainly comes up with some really good ideas. I think there are models in other counties and areas to do it. Absolutely. Um, I think the caveat that I would have is I went to a meeting. Well, two things. First of all, I want to say that I haven't seen Councillor Asher Craig. We have not had a report. The scrutiny group have just, it's just sort of disappeared into the ether. Um, Cabinet members have been invited. They've refused to come. I've written I know Councillor Negus has written because he's the chair of it. No response. And again, we get a press release. So, you know, that's a bit disrespectful. And it just, it, it doesn't feel as if we're being allowed to hold the administration to account. So I don't know. I've read the Mutual Ventures report. I've read the press release. I've had a meeting with a, a new officer who's come into the role where we talked about commercialisation. And... I think, you know, commercialisation is going to be a, a big buzzword going forwards with the council. And that's fair enough. I'm open to change. I think it's a really good idea. And I heard a lot of what Gary said about um, other trusts and ventures. thing is that, you know, the, the big danger is that with libraries, people expect to go to libraries and, and get things for free. Uh, and I'm not sure that, you know, we, we had an officer. This is a bit cheeky, but we had an officer 
from the museums talking about how the museums do great stuff and they do they you know they they've they've turned the museums around uh, really well but but um, she talked about selling books and things in the museum and I did have to smile because you know people are not going to come to a library and buy a book mm. it's it's a bookshop they go to a library to borrow things free but but I do I do accept that there there are lots of ways of making it commercial however what I don't know is if there's any funding or any capital for that. So to establish these trusts or mutual yeah. ventures. So, I mean, if say, for example, using Clifton, my, the, my own library that I know quite a bit about, if the friends group were going to take that on as, or, or take it on as, as part of a trust or the community, there's a lot of talk about working with communities to take over the libraries. We would, we, you know, we've had people in to do some, you know, rough evaluations of what we'd need to do to make it more commercially viable. So we could rent it out. You know, I think it's a beautiful library. We could mm-hmm. maybe have weddings at the weekend or parties or something like that. But we'd need to spend money. So where's the money coming from? We would need to have some money. There's no point in just working with communities and saying, here's the keys, have your libraries. And I think we need some clarity on that. We need some proper vision. And and do you know what we need? We need just a proper full report, thoroughly written and and now I think we're going to get one in October, maybe. Gary, you're chomping at the bit to talk about libraries and trusts. Yeah, well, point is, it's got to be done properly. So our plan that, you know, from our party plan, effectively, was that you use the professional staff to help the volunteers. They put their expertise in. You can graft on volunteers onto a structure that's working, that's got a proper purpose and is well planned. You can't just throw a lot of volunteers who've got no experience mm-hmm. an empty building and say, get on with it, because that doesn't actually work. When we actually handed across the trust, the, the Arnesvale Cemetery, a lot of work had actually been done on that before it was handed over. And quite amusingly, I was signing it away on behalf of the City Council, and my ward colleague, Chris Davis, who was a trustee, Oh, was accepting it on behalf of the Annisfield Trust. But because it, although it's mainly in Brislington, it's officially in Noel Ward. Uh, but we'd done a lot of work on that and we helped to train the volunteers on what they could actually do. But having got enthusiastic volunteers and given them a bit of backing, they've done the job and they've done it brilliantly. Mm. And that place now is improved out of all recognition. Millions of pounds got in that the council couldn't possibly got in from trusts, donations. <laughs> yes, they do run weddings in, in a cemetery, you know. Mm. Yeah. They do some great events mm. there as well. Yeah. Talks it, and so yeah. discos. So Gary, did you from, from Marvin's press release, do you get the do you get the idea that he's going to embark on the the bigger sort of, you know, the council handover libraries as a trust to some sort of joint venture That's thing? What I was gonna I'm not or, idea. I, I, or can I just finish no, the point though? Or yeah. We've heard an awful lot from Councillor Craig saying she's she's having sort of backdoor chats with community groups. So, my two questions to you: one, is it the former or the latter, and which which would be better? Well, I haven't got a clue what he's planning to do uh, because they never speak to us, as <laughs> you quite rightly say. And and really, you can't do it individually, completely individual. I'm, I'm sure so in you Clifton, don't think that you can have individual trusts per library. It needs to be an overarching. I think trust. you can have volunteer groups. But I do think you need a unifying structure because apart from anything else, in Clifton, you'd get enough volunteers yeah. uh, to do the job, to keep the place running and all the rest of it. You try doing it in some of the 
more challenged areas where the libraries are an absolutely vital mm. public service because they haven't got anything else. Well, I'd, I'd come back with you in that with the Clifton thing. We've been running it for two years and people are getting tired already. And we've just been, you know, just, just trying to put events on, trying to make some money out of it. Um, and I, I think if, if it's difficult, I agree with you, if it's difficult in a place like Clifton, what's going to be like in other parts of the city? Yeah, so you, you, you do need a unifying structure. You need professionals uh, that are there to help and advise. And basically, you need to give the structure a fair start. I mean, when we were looking at the parks, the council suddenly produced this idea of a trust. But their idea of a trust was that they throw it at uh, the, the, the parks forum or their representatives and mm. say, get on with it. And they quoted an example of Milton Keynes, where that is, the parks are run by a trust. They were given a £100 million property portfolio to use income mm. from to mm-hmm. pay for the parks. Yeah. So it was done in a way that gave a So fair Gary, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with your proselytising for trusts and I agree with you, mm-hmm. but the, the real question would be, what can we do? If, we, if we're actually reading the newspapers and thinking that, that um, the administration is going to go through this half-hearted backdoor um, community groups thing, if we're the opposition, what can we do to get some leverage or to persuade the administration to, to 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 read the Mutual Ventures report and to go with that. I mean, I don't understand why the Mutual Ventures report is sort of being buried because, you know, that was that was a, a good report. I, I understand why it's being buried uh, because the Labour Party look at it either uh, council employee good, everything else bad. Uh, and that's their mindset. Mm-hmm. And basically, if it's not actually directly controlled by them in, in, in every detail, it's privatised. And, and basically, I'm sure that Marvin came to an arrangement with employees and, and gave certain assurances early in this process. Uh, and that's why we have 10, you know, 10 libraries solidly protected mm. and the rest go hang. Mm, yes. Uh, and which is quite frankly, you know, yeah. an, an impossible and unacceptable situation. Actually, on one of the task and finish groups, um, I asked the question about what, if if twi- you know if, if if we kept ten libraries open, this is back in the day when mm-hmm. were, you know when we were looking at 20, seventeen libraries closing. Um, if ten libraries that were open had twenty five percent of their staffing done by volunteers, and that money was released to help the other seventeen libraries, how much would that be? And I I had to push to get the figure, but again, it was half a million. Mm-hmm. Half a million a year could be used to to prop up and. You know, why, why, why are things not more strategic? Mm. Why is there not more? Well, you know, I mean, it, it goes back to what Gary is saying is the fact that there seems to be, you know, a, a really big line in the sand against volunteers working with paid professionals. And, you know, that's something that the unions need to be taken on about. And you mentioned, obviously, that you're open to the idea of trusts, but are there downsides to them? You mentioned kind of commercialisation, mm. backdoor privatisation, a mm. loss of control from the council's perspective. Is that a concern at all? Um, I think it is a concern, but it's not such a huge concern that I would just think that it's something that you need to walk away from. I think everybody accepts that libraries need to to change. And I think it needs some, you know, entrepreneurial thinking. I think we need to, you know, I, I often quote the fact that in the 1930s, people went to libraries to, to borrow pictures to hang on their walls because they couldn't afford mm. them. Now, People don't go to libraries to borrow books because they can get them from a Kindle and, and very cheaply. Uh, but what people lack is somebody to talk to about the book that they've just read. So libraries 
could be a place to to lessen social isolation. I think you know, uh, you know, a trust could come in with some really good ways of you know using co-location of services. You know, we don't we don't have practice rooms for uh, nurses, and you know, there's lots of adult services that could all be be added together. And and again, you know, more commercial things like you know room hire and parties and as you say, weddings in libraries, weddings in in graveyards, it happens and it's mm. it's commercially successful. But I think, and I think a trust would be a way of handing that over. And, and of course, as long as it's a charitable trust, they don't have to pay rates, um, business rates on the buildings because, you know, Bristol gets, I think it's about £800,000 a year in, in business rates from the libraries. And that has to be factored into mm. it too. So, um, you know, again, it's a bit, you know, we've, we've had the whole KPMG report on the Temple Arena. Oh goodness, we could have, have, something, another we could have one something really libraries. thorough on libraries. Well, we've got the mutual ventures, which can be extrapolated out from. And we've got the learning from elsewhere in the country. Mm, and yeah. there are some very good examples of how it's been done properly. I'll give an example of the poor thinking and why it's, it, the, the libraries have ossified, as it were. A few years ago, when I, I was in charge of uh, the uh, customer service, we recognised we had we couldn't keep full customer services in as many points as we wanted. Mm-hmm. And one of the ideas that we used was actually putting in a um, couple of customer service specialists into libraries one or two days a week. Now, the customer service point that people in my neck of the woods were using was closed down. I didn't have any choice and I had already been decided a while beforehand. But what we were able to do was to replace it with somebody sat in the library for a day and a half a week. Mm. And the cost was minimal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, do you know what? It went wrong. Firstly, because they absolutely insisted there had to be two staff there mm. at all time. I mean, two customer advisors, given that there's two library staff there as well. and they, But they didn't yeah. count because they're from a different department. And this is part of the problem that the council actually has when deciding services uh, and and running services effectively. And then actually, unfortunately, the previous mayor decided to cancel it, uh, the whole concept of advisors in library. Now, I actually, and I'm sure Paula gets it, hundreds of emails Mm. from people in the area who can't access a customer service point now because there's only one in the centre of Bristol. And they, therefore, they come on to their council, can you help me with this, this and this? Something that previously they could wander into an office and a five-minute chat would sort out. It doesn't happen now. They travel halfway across Bristol, uh, you know, to get a, a, a routine query solved. So you referred there to the to the two-person, the two-workers rule. I mean, do you think that the... Is, is Marvin allowing himself to be held hostage and, and, and the libraries of Bristol to be held hostage to intractable staffing? In, in the library services? Yes. And what would you suggest? How, how is he going to get around that? I, I think we need to uh, work through this and get proper guarantees put in because we must uh, make certain staff work in a safe environment. Mm. That's absolutely essential. But that doesn't mean that we've got to follow an agreement that was decided 10 years ago in different circumstances. Mm. We've got to make certain that we look after the staff. But the, fir- the point of libraries isn't there so that people got... Staff have got somewhere comfortable to sit. A lot of them really want to work hard and they want to work with volunteers and, and, and want to bring those people in and expand the service. But I'm afraid the thinking is so negative that it's actually, you know, I mean, we know that they're, they're not going to close until the election. 
How cynical is that? Mm. There's no long-term plan. I know, actually, you there, remind no me when... There's no sustainable plan at all. When, when on one of the meetings for the Libraries Task and Finish group last year, we were presented with some evidence and, and one of the pieces of evidence really shocked me because it was so biased. It was about um, the diary of a librarian working with volunteers and it was, oh, it was shocking today. They never turned up. They didn't know this. They didn't know that. It was just incredibly negative. And I thought, why is this being put into the pack for us to read? Yeah. Because it's it's just such a biased piece. My point, though, is yeah. do you think then that trusts could be used as a way of re-energising, reinvigorating, restarting the whole relationship with staffing and libraries then? So, I mean, obviously, yeah. they'd be tupied across, I presume, but, you know, could there be changes but, in regulations? But then? what yes. would volunteering for a trust, how would that be any different to volunteering for your library now? Well, the point is that they won't, you know, the libraries won't allow, because we suggested mm. that we wanted to work with um, librarians in Clifton. So you have to have two people in yes, the library yeah. all the time. So we were saying, well, why can't one of the people be a, a volunteer? But that's that's not something that the library services will engage with mm -hmm. because they feel that if a, if... A volunteer didn't turn up, then they wouldn't be able to open. Okay. And we offered two volunteers. Surely one of them will turn up. But it, it is there is an, an element of intractability there, and 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 they feel that, and it made me feel, and I I felt I had to back off at the time because they they said, well, you're taking people's jobs away, mm -hmm. and, and that's the point. But mm, you know, well, but then the libraries are going to close. Something's anyway, going to change. Yeah. Immediately when we suggested an alternative method, you know using some volunteers, the immediate response that we actually got was, oh, you're, you're trying to sack staff. Mm. We said, no, the mayor's trying to sack staff. We actually want to use those staff more effectively. Mm. We want to bring in people to help them. I'll give a local example. Our library, the hours have been cut down, but we still regularly get, it's closing today because a member of staff has gone off sick yeah. somewhere mm. and they've got no flexibility built into the system at all. So regularly... Actually, the public service just stops with no notice at all. Just around the corner, we've got the Red Catch Community Centre, uh, which has won awards for being the best community centre in Bristol and all that sort of thing. 20 years ago, that was a falling down building uh, that was owned by the council. It was taken over by the community. Actually, by the chair it was my ward partner, Chris Davis. He wasn't a councillor then, he is now. But with people in the community, they rebuilt it and it's and not one person gets paid for being involved in that in that community centre. It is packed, mm. daytime, nighttime, weekends. It is now in such pristine condition you couldn't believe it. They've got money coming out of their ears despite offering. And is that a trust or is it? No, it's not a formal trust. No. It's a charity. Uh, but they've got money coming out of their ears because people in the community have wanted to do it, mm. rallied round and done it. And they run that organisation mm. far more effectively than our local library gets run. Just one final question to both of you. We've seen a pause with the libraries. We've had a little bit of a rollback on the cuts to the parks. We've obviously got this pause to the arena decision. When do you think Marvin's going to have to start making some decisions and following through with them? Well, on the libraries, we don't have a sustainable plan. It should have been done some while ago when before this hiatus and all that horrendous people upset and you know hundreds and hundreds of hours of people's time mm -hmm. wasted on a plan that didn't progress especially when the whole thing was tried two years ago the arena basically within weeks he needs to press the button to get on with building at temple Meads. Uh, and with regard to making decisions i mean 
we were told we had to have the mayor's system so that people would make clear decisions. Goodness gracious me. I mean, we have had incompetence and money wasted ever since we got the first mayor. And I can tell you now, if the general public in Bristol were asked, and they will be asked in the not-too-distant future, do you want to carry on with a mayor's system? It'll be a resounding no. Paula? Well, I think Marvin should definitely be able to get the information that he needs. I mean, I think it's, from, from my reading of the press release, it's just, you know, having some conversations with Buckingham and, and the Arena Limited. Um, so a couple of weeks, he pushed us to do, uh, you know, to do an awful lot in a very short amount of time. So I think, you know, he, he should actually, one of Marvin's favourite phrases is, I've got to push back. So we push back on that. We've been told that the deadline for the libraries, that it's going to be October. I did, as we said last week, I attended a meeting with a new officer who's taking over that role. And she talked, you know, about engaging with communities and people went, oh, not another consultation. And so it's adamantly not another consultation. But I, I don't think it would, I don't think it really will be this big idea of trusts. I think it'll just be another little band-aid-y plaster type thing. I really would urge Marvin to be bolder. You know, I mean, actually, when right back in 2016, I can remember writing him an email and that the whole, the heading was Be Bold for Bristol. And I urged him then on the cuts to really be bold and he wasn't. And, um, you know, again, I, 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 I know politics is the art of, the, of the, the, the possible. I know it's a tough job, but bigger decisions need to be made. And, you know, 1.4 million has not been saved. That 1.4 million could have been strategically used for something else. Mm. And it hasn't. So... You know, when when Marvin's saying about the, you know, the cuts and, and how well he's doing with dealing with them, we need to see all of the bits where by sleight of hand or by, you know, not making the right decisions quickly enough, savings are being lost. So, you know, two weeks for the arena. Please, Marvin, in October, come up with something big and bold and great for the libraries because people really want them. I've lied. I'm going to ask you one more. Oh. <laughs> Do you think the administration, his administration is in trouble? It's it's a difficult situation. I'm not sure how, I mean, I, I look at Theresa May and I think, how do you get out of bed any morning? I look at Marvin and I think, gosh, some days, how do you get out of bed? Because we know that there's trouble on the back benches. He's trying to keep all of these balls juggling. I think his heart is in the right place. I'm afraid, I just think that, I think it's an awful pity that he didn't have more experience of being in the council. I, if I were, if I were um, a benign dictator, I would just say that nobody could work in local government and be a, be a, um, a mayor unless they'd been a councillor first. Because how could he possibly have the insight to know all to, to to know what he needs to do? And its inactivity might be his downfall, his lack of actual concrete achievements. Gary, same question. Oh, the mayor's system causes the trouble. I so mean, it's not Marvin; it's the system that he's in. Well, yeah, I mean, part of it is down to his personal inability to get on and make clear decisions and look at facts and analyse stuff. But also, the reason for poor decision-making is that it is not collective decision-making. I remember being part of an administration where we actually argued amongst ourselves, sometimes quite forcibly, about what should happen. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, We did that. And... If I had a controversial plan that I wanted to put at the place for my uh, portfolio, if, if I knew it was going to be controversial, I brought it uh, to the, the cabinet for discussion 
and all the bits were knocked off it. You know, we, we got the plan that worked before we went out uh, in front of the public. It might be slightly less exciting from a media point of view, but things were done thoroughly and properly. Under the mayor's system, that's not happening because under a, a, a leader system, which is what we had before, the members of the group and the cabinet actually elect the leader. They get somebody in who's capable, who's got the experience, who understands it. They might not agree with them on every detail, but it's, it's, it's somebody who's been around the block mm. and who actually understands how to do things. With the mayor system, you know, we, we, we get a pop star. I mean, George had actually <laughs> been a, a, a councillor. He had before, but it was 30 years ago uh, that he'd been a councillor. Things are so completely different then. But he didn't understand that. He came in and said, oh, this and this and this. And it, it all changed. And I remember sitting in a meeting with him and his PA. And I'm saying, I'm sorry, George, but you've got this completely wrong. And we were having a, a frank discussion about a couple of things. And I said, this council had actually been making very significant strides forward a few years ago, uh, over the last few years. Uh, but I'm afraid that you haven't recognised him and you haven't carried them on and worked with them. You've just ripped everything up again. And his PA said, well, who's quite experienced, he said, absolutely, Gary, you're right. And he just looked at her and a couple of weeks later, she wasn't in the job. But, you know... How often do you hear Gary, you're right now? <laughs> <laughs> I hear it quite a lot, actually, mainly from constituents. Not in the chamber. <laughs> uh, but, again, Marvin didn't have any experience. That's a, that's a vital factor. But the system is wrong. Because officers run round telling him what, he, what they think he wants to hear mm. rather than there being a proper group discussion about it. So uh, assertions go completely unchallenged. Mm. It doesn't happen. That's why you're getting bad decisions which need to be reversed later. And he's not unique. The previous one did exactly the same. He, he made some very bad decisions as well that, that had to be reversed. And he did things in a way that was crass. I mean, I you know, was involved when we brought in the first couple of residence parking zones, the, the first one in Kingsdown. And we did work with people, and we were in favour of it. Uh, but the way that George ploughed into it, and the way he managed to upset people because of the way he did it, as well as what he actually did, uh, was an indication of lack of experience. I've just put my rose-tinted lenses back in again, <laughs> and I'd just like to say that, that I, I mean, I think we need to be a bit more optimistic because we're all... We all work for Bristol and we want the city to be great. The, the, the two years have been, you know, stumbling forward. But now, I think, I think a lot of mistakes were made. I, I think post-Bundred, the baby was thrown out with the bathwater. I think that now we've got a whole new, two, so the top two tiers of the organisation have been refreshed. Lots of new people coming in. And again, I'm, I'm reminded of this because I agree with what you say. You don't want a mayor surrounded by acolytes. And I hope that the, the new directors that come in are people who will challenge him and speak truth to power, to use the, 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 off, the much overused phrase. But that's what needs to, be, to happen. Marvin needs to be told a bit more what to do. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. It's great fun. Well, thank you so much for listening and I really hope you enjoyed our conversations. Remember, you can rate, review and most importantly, subscribe to Nevermind the Ballots at your preferred podcasting app. You can also follow us on Twitter at Ballots Podcast. 
And do join us again next week for our final show of the series, where we will be joined by two very special guests. Until then, thank you. (laughs) 